Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. Good morning, and welcome to Redeemer Online. If it's your first time with us, my name is Jeff Martin. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're so thankful you're with us. This summer, we're doing a series where we're talking about hard questions when it comes to the Christian faith. These are real questions that people are asking, and instead of tucking our heads in the sand, we really want to meet them head on. Today's question is going to be hard, or we're going to talk about the pro-life versus pro-choice discussion. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in James chapter 1, and that's where we'll be hanging out this morning. Um, But let me pray for us, and we'll get started. God, I ask that your presence be with us wherever we are in this discussion. God, I ask that you would help us to, to be humble this morning and that we would be moldable, that we would hear your word, that we would hear your heart, and that we would be responded or that we'd be shaped by that, that our response to, to these questions would be more about our being compelled by the beauty of the gospel than anything else. So God, help us out this morning. We need it. We love you. We ask that your presence would be felt. God, in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we're talking about hard questions. And the point of this series is to say, what are the real questions people are asking? And, And so today the question is, why does it feel like so many Christians are against a woman's right to choose. Why does it feel like so many Christians are against a woman's right to choose? And I said that this is a, this is a big one. Okay. Um, Well, the core issue, the core issue between the pro-life versus pro-choice discussion, it really boils down to whose rights matter most. Whose rights matter most? Is, Is it the mother or is it the infant in the womb? And so to get to that, let me read to you from James 1, starting in verse 27. Uh, James says this. This is the half-brother of Jesus. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so he defines for us pure religion, and it involves caring for orphans and widows. Then he continues into to chapter two. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So there's that command, hey, don't show partiality. So what's happening in the church that James is addressing here? Well, what's happening is that the rich people are getting VIP treatment. As, as you read on in verses two through seven, you see that the rich people are getting the VIP treatment while those who are poor, those who are widows, those who are orphans, are more or less being pushed to the side. And, and so he looks at that and says, that's not how the church should look. No one should be receiving VIP treatment over others. And if you read down to verse 8, um, he says this. He says, look, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. He says, you're doing, you're doing well. And so when he quotes this great commandment about loving your neighbor as yourself, here's what he's getting at. He's basically saying that 
everyone should receive VIP treatment. He's basically, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, whether you're famous or forgotten, we all deserve VIP treatment because we all have this divine imprint. He said, look, every person, every single person bears the image of God. They have that divine imprint. And if you bear that imprint, if you have that, then you deserve the VIP treatment. So if we're giving it to some and not others, then we're completely missing the boat. And, and this is where the pro-life versus pro-choice discussion begins to break down. Because neither side, neither side is known for respecting every human in the equation. So pro-life people look at the pro-choice people and say, like, how could you not care for a living human being who is voiceless and unable to protect itself? Like, that just seems so barbaric and evil that you would allow that child to die. And, and then the pro-life people, or the pro-choice people look at the pro-life and say, well, how come you only fight for the birth of this child? But once this child is born and once it begins to grow up, it seems like you completely leave it behind. It, it's almost like, hey, you guys are more pro-infant than pro-life. And all of a sudden, as, as you, if you've ever been a part of these discussions, you, can, you know that it gets heated and it gets heated quick. It's messy. It's hard. And, and so I would say this, both parties, both are right when they advocate, advocate for those who need to be advocated for. Right? When you advocate for someone who needs to be advocated for, you're, you're in the right. Okay, So both parties are in the right for advocating, but neither is fully in line with what James would call pure religion. You see, for James, both the vulnerable woman and the vulnerable child need to be cared for and advocated for. And, and so to advocate for one and not the other is to have a lopsided faith. And so we realize this, as Christians, you know, when we narrowly define our stance by two political terms, um, we can really have a faith that's not in line with what God longs for. So there needs to be a better way forward, maybe a more broad perspective than those two narrow lenses. Okay, so what is that way forward? What is the the Christian stance when it comes to this issue? So let's not define it as pro-life, pro-choice. Let's let's look at like let's define it biblically through a lens that seeks to to know God's heart. Well, for me, the key question is this: Is there a child in the womb? That, that's where this all begins. When we look at what's what's in the womb, is that a child? Is that a human being? Is 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 that a person or not? Because if it's not a human being, if that's not a person, then I don't think there's any justification needed. There's no justification needed just to abort it. However, if it is a human being, then there's no justification adequate. And so we, we've got to get down to the to define it. Okay, like, so what's in the womb? Is it a person? Is it not? Is it a human or is it not? And, and you might be thinking, well, are you a doctor? Are you a biologist? Are you a medical professional? And, and, and no, I'm not. Um, but as a follower of Christ, I believe that, that God's word is God-breathed. I believe scripture is God-breathed, and I believe that what it says is profitable to this discussion. And so as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor, from my point of view, I want to understand what, what God has to say about this issue and whether or not this child or, or what's in the womb is a child or not. And so in Luke 1, um, that's the New Testament, one of the Gospels. There's John the Baptist. He was Jesus's cousin. And he actually leaps in the womb. It tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was 
ever born. In Psalm 139, David, um, he talks about how God formed his, his innermost parts and how he knitted him together in the womb, how God did that. And in Jeremiah 1, 5, God says to, to the prophet, he says, look, before I formed you, I knew you. He says, before you were born, I, I consecrated you. And what's really interesting is the Old Testament Hebrew word for toddler is the exact same word used for the child in the womb, which, which means that for the Bible, there's no distinction like that. A, a, a child at, at conception is just as much considered to be a human being as a toddler at four or five years old. There's no distinction in the Old Testament between what's in the womb and what's out of the womb. They're both seen as human beings. Another thing that's interesting is there, there are some Old Testament laws. And so if you read you know, like Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and so in Exodus, what we find out is that if, if someone, like say you accidentally kill somebody, like you, it's an accident, it's involuntary, but someone dies. What God did is he put together these, these cities of refuge. There were six cities of refuge. And so you were called to flee to one of those cities if the death was accident. If it was an accident, it's a life for a life. All right. But if it was an accident, it's like, hey, you need to go to one of these cities. And basically what that was, was that was house arrest. So you accidentally kill someone, you're, you're subject to house arrest for a period of time. But what's interesting is you get some numbers and you find out that like, there's this, this um, what happens if two men are fighting? Okay. Two men are fighting. And in that fight, a pregnant woman accidentally gets hit. Maybe she's coming in there to try to break it up. I'm not sure, but a pregnant woman accidentally gets hit and she loses the baby. If that happens, it's actually a life for life scenario. So with those two laws, the accidentally killing another man or accidentally killing a baby, both deaths are accidental, but, it, but there's actually a higher value placed on the child in the womb than the adult. But all that to say that, that scripture seems to see that there is value, a life value to the child in the womb. So I would say that what's in the womb is, is not just a fetus. It's not just cells. It is a human being. Okay. So the child in the womb is a unique living soul who carries God's divine imprint and whose value should be protected even by laws. Okay? The child in the womb is a unique living soul who carries God's divine imprint and whose value should be protected even by laws. Okay? Now, I, I, I think there are some follow-up questions that are going to arise from this. Like I said, like this series is about what are people saying and asking on the street. So let's say that this is the position we land on. Right? It is a child. It's, it's, it's a soul, a unique soul. It carries the divine imprint of God and it should be protected. There's some, some common questions that follow. And, and so I just want to address a couple of those. Now, I will say this before I talk about these. There's an acronym called SLED. And sometimes it, it, you, can, you can defuse the situation. I don't know if that's the right word. You can talk about a situation and help reframe it by, by addressing like, you know, okay, size. Does size determine humanity? Does um, 
level of development, does environment, does degree of dependency. And so that, that's something we to research and look into. Um, but so one of the questions that I get is, well, what if the child's going to be born into a hard life? And you're saying, like, this kid's going to come into the world, and what happens if he's in poverty? What happens if it's an abusive situation? What happens if, if this kid's not going to have its basic needs met? I mean, what if this child is going to be born into a hard life? And this is where you say, you know, it's easy for people who are pro-life to be pro-infant, but this kid's going to grow up. And so what are you, you going to do, all right, on the back end? Like, what do we do with, with that? And so I think this is interesting. Jeremiah, I've already talked about him, but also Job. These are two heroes of the Old Testament. And at points in their life, in their adulthood, they look back and say, life is so hard right now that it would have been better if I wasn't born. In other words, they, they desired that God wouldn't have brought them into this world. He's like, man, like when you think about what I'm going through and what I've been through and, and what seems to be around the corner, how could a good God even bring me into this? Wouldn't have been more kind, more loving to keep me from this? You know, so they're asking the same questions. Like, what if, what if a child is being to, going to be brought into hard situations and they're living those hard situations? But neither of these guys chose to take their lives. Um, you see, for them, both, both Jeremiah and Job, they realized that there's a difference between quality of life and value of life. Those aren't, those aren't the same things. So you can't measure someone's value and, and their worth to life, um, their right to life, based off of the quality. There's, there's just a huge difference, right? And so, so for them, they would say there's a difference between quality of life and value of life, and value of life outweighs quality every time. So, so even if it's a hard situation, we still value that life. Okay. Following up with that, it's, well, what about the circumstances that led to the pregnancy? I mean, like, what if the pregnancy is unwanted? What if it was unplanned? What if it was rape? What if it was incest? Are, are you saying, like, if, if this woman did not want this to be, like, are you okay with, with, with robbing her of the ability to choose what to do here? Like, what about the circumstances? And I'll say, I've been in Christianity long enough to know that the most common response I hear when that question is posed is statistical, where someone says 1% are rape cases, 0.05% are incest. And, but I want to say, let's, let's not go statistics on here. Okay, let's not go statistics, all right? Because any response that doesn't first and foremost recognize the genuine pain in hardship experienced by the mother who is involuntarily pregnant is a response that completely misses the heart of Christ. Okay, so if our response to that is first and foremost statistics, we're missing the heart of Jesus. We've got to recognize the real and genuine pain that's experienced by moms who have an involuntary pregnancy. Um, there was a gynecologist in Nashville who, who recently talked about just a, a real-time situation where he said a girl came into his office completely broken and distressed. And the reason why she was distressed is because um, a group of thugs took her and each one had their way with her. And now she was unexpectedly pregnant and she was 10 years old. 10 years old. Four and a half hours away from Johnson City, real life situation, a child who is 10 had a child 
in her womb. Ten. That's not a statistic. That's a girl who's two years older than my daughter. Right? Like, like that's not a statistic, okay? So, so mercy is, is lifting the burden off of someone and putting it on your own shoulders. You see, mercy is, is putting yourself in the shoes of those who are scared, who are alone, and, and who, are even, who are even ashamed. Okay, so mercy doesn't look at statistics. Mercy says, what if that's my kid? What if that's, what if that's mine? Right? It's a different approach to this. I think, gosh, um, a couple of years ago, about two years ago, I got a call that I dreaded. Um, I was a youth minister before becoming the lead pastor here at Redeemer and I always thought, like, is this going to be my story? Is this going to be something I have to walk through? And I got a phone call and, and the voice at, at first was, was, was cheerful and, hey, how's it going? I just want to catch up. And then, then it, it turned. There's really no good way to turn. And, um, and I found out that one of my, one of my old students, um, she took her life. And as details began to come out revolving why, um, you see, she, um, she was a little bit rebellious in her spirit and, um, and was always at it with her parents. And eventually her parents thought the most loving thing they could do was to, to not enable her. And so they removed her um, from their home. So she, so she she was not allowed there anymore, and she lived kind of hopping from from friends' couches to friends' couches, and um, and so eventually started dating a guy, and and he broke up with her, and uh, and so that was kind of her saving grace, like that finding love, and and he broke up with her. He wanted to pursue his dreams, and um, and so about that time, she found out that she was actually pregnant by him. And she felt like, I can't go home because my parents won't talk to me anymore. And she thought, I can't call him because if he finds out that he's going to be a dad, that'll keep him from pursuing what he wants to pursue. And, and one particular night, that particular night, she she couldn't find a couch to crash on. And so um, not knowing what to do, where to go, she decided to take a ton of pills and... And I don't think it was intentional, but she, she didn't come out of it. Um, her life was ended with a child inside her womb. And a broken, alone, scared. And I think, man, if, if my religion is correct theologically, even on the like the what to do's, care for the mom, care for the child. But if my religion is right theologically, but it doesn't move from my head into my hearts, into fists that are clenched and willing to fight just as hard for her and for women like her, then that's a religion that's not Christ-like at all. And so I say that because we've got to fight. We've got to fight. I don't think that that unplanned circumstances justify an abortion, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of women who don't know where else to turn, and we've got to fight for them. And we've got to fight. I think about um, the early church in Rome, 
back in the third century, um, it actually transformed an empire. And what was interesting is Christians came to Caesar and they said, give us your sick and we'll care for them. Give us your hungry and we'll feed them. Give us your pregnant women and we'll care for them. Give us your children and we will adopt them and raise them. And they infected an empire with the love of Christ. And it changed the course of history. So I think like, as Christians, when we hear of these situations, we have to respond through a Christ-like infection of love to, to our city and to our world. And maybe they're like, how do I do that? Um, Safe Families is a ministry we partner with, which is kind of on the front end of foster care. Agape is a women's ministry that, that walks side by side with women who don't know what to do and so much more. But that, that's an incredible ministry here in town. Um, you have foster care. You have adoption. And I don't know how to word this. It's probably going to come out wrong. But um, I think it's important to know because, I look, I have friends at Redeemer. I have friends outside of Redeemer that are Christians and they line up on the pro-choice side of things. And so like, I, I disagree with that stance. But what I find so much hope in is that my pro-choice friends are adopting and foster caring and loving on kids who are about to come to the world unexpectedly or who are on the back end. And, and so like, I, just, I say just to say, like, let's not demonize people because there are people on both sides who are making the world a better place, okay? All right, so, so sorry, a little emotional there. Um, but this is, like I said, this, is just, this isn't just a philosophical position paper. This is, this is real life stuff, and I want to talk about it. So it's going to get a little raw. Um, the next question, the final question I want to talk about is, is this. Um, shouldn't the mom have the right to choose? All right, shouldn't the mom have the right to choose? I think sometimes we fall into this, or I fall into this thinking of like, well, if I can just prove the humanity of the kid, then everything's going to fall into place. And, um, and, that, and I found that that's just not true. And so one of the biggest arguments um, that would even recognize the humanity of the child but still make a case for pro-choice is, is known as the violinist. Um, this is a, a philosophical position um, or an illustration to... to to wrap your head around, like, how could someone be a Christian and still align? Or how could someone believe in the humanity of this kid and still and still side with a woman's right to choose? And, and so it starts off by recognizing that this is a child, this is a human being, and recognizing that every person has a right to life. And so it, so it accurately represents the pro-life position. But then it asks us to consider a scenario. And the scenario is, it goes like this. Imagine waking up um, in a hospital bed and you are back to back with a violinist. And this is a world-renowned violinist, someone who's famous, someone who's made the world a better place. And it turns out that, that you are surgically attached to him. And, and so a doctor comes in and, and says, I'm, I'm so sorry that this happened. I didn't know they were gonna kidnap you. I didn't know this was gonna happen. Um, but what, what it is is that they scanned the medical records and found that you have the only blood type to save his life. 
And, and so they, they took you, they put you under, they connected you. And what's happening is that as his blood circulates through your kidneys, he's got a kidney ailment, um, it actually filters out the poisons and the toxins. And that's going to be about a nine-month process. But at nine months, he'll be fully healed. And at nine months, he can detach and you can go about your life and he can go about his. And, and so the question being is, um, should you have the right to choose not to do that? Or are you obligated to stay connected to someone that you didn't have a choice in the matter, that you found yourself unexpectedly connected to? And so the, it's outrageous to say that that person's right to live surpasses your right to choose how that can affect your body or your life. So it says, like, surely it would be kind. It would be heroic to stay connected, but, but should it be your obligation? Shouldn't you have the right to choose? And so when you hear that argument, um, it's powerful. Because one, like it does, it, it accurately paints a picture of the pro-life position that, that that's a child and it should have the right to life. But then it takes a scenario um, that appeals to our, our sense of moral justice. And, and I go, but I do want to, um, when I was in college, instead of taking like PE, weightlifting or jogging or scuba diving, I was like, I'll take logic classes and, and sciences. Um, my GPA suffered, but I took classes that I knew would be beneficial for me one day in ministry. And so, so I took a lot of philosophy and, to, and one of those being a logic class. And, and so this argument, as great as it sounds, as powerful as it is, it's actually a, a slippery slope argument because it assumes parallels that aren't actually parallels. So I do want to point out just there's more than this, but I just want to point out three ways that, that it, it tries to make a parallel to pregnancy, but it actually falls short. Okay, so the first thing is that there's a difference between being surgically attached to someone and the natural process of reproduction. There's a difference between uh, an invader-host relationship and the relationship, the union between a mother and an unborn child. So, so that parallel is not a true parallel. There's a difference between invader-host and mother-child. There's, there's a difference between surgical attachment and natural reproduction. The second thing is, is that with the violinist, you're choosing to withhold treatment. But with abortion, you're not choosing to withhold treatment. You're actively poisoning or dismembering. And so it might be more accurate to say it's not just pulling the plug, but what if before you pulled the plug on the violinist, you crushed him or began to cut him into pieces? I mean, that, that, that does change things. Okay, and then third is that parents have a greater obligation to their kids than to strangers. I know this because there are laws that, that require me to provide basic needs for my kids. And if I don't provide basic needs for my kids, then Child Protective Services can come in and remove them. But I don't have a legal obligation to care for my neighbors or kids across town. If I'm not caring for the basic needs of those who live in a different neighborhood, or even just across the street, no one's coming to my house and finding me or bringing me to jail. Because as a parent, I have a greater obligation to my kids than to a stranger. And so, so I believe the parallel breaks down here because your obligation to a violinist 
just isn't the same as your obligation to a kid. So maybe a better parallel would be, what if a mom was in a horrible car wreck and, um, and went unconscious and she woke up and she was surgically connected to her two-year-old son and she knew that she had to stay connected to him for a few months for him to live and to heal and to have a flourishing life. But if she disconnected, he would breathe his last. You see, I think that changes the illustration when you think of it in a more realistic parallel. Okay, well, let me just offer some, some final thoughts here. Um, God is the giver of life. And I full-heartedly believe that abortion is wrong. But the church has to be more than pro-infant. We have to fight for the child. We have to fight for the mom. We have to fight as kids grow up. We have to fight for all human life. right? So, so the church must respond by seeking the, the dignity and the worth and the value of all human beings from birth to their final breath. And I know, I know there's a lot of people watching today. And I know that of those watching, there are people who have had abortions. There are those who have supported abortions, people who have encouraged it. A lot of us have simply just been passive and done nothing. And we need to realize that God is the judge of sin. We need to realize that God is the judge of sin. But the way the gospel informs this, the way the gospel speaks to you today, is that not only is God the judge of sin, but he's also the savior of sinners. Yeah, he hates abortion but he still passionately loves you, even if you've participated in it. You see, when your faith is in Christ, we find that God forgives entirely. That God forgives entirely. That, that 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful to forgive you. And, and in the Psalms, we know that your sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. So I want you to know that there is forgiveness offered to you. But what's beautiful is that not only does he forgive entirely, he heals deeply. In Luke 7, there's a woman who's in sin, and, and when Jesus forgives her, um, by the end, he tells her to go in peace. And that word peace means to be whole again, to be right, which means that God doesn't want to just wipe your slate clean, but make sure you wear a scarlet letter. No, he clothes you in the righteousness of Christ and, and assures you that when he sees you, he sees his beloved child, someone that he is pleased with and someone that he is madly in love with. And that's the good news of the gospel. And we want to remember that this morning. Look, if you've never trusted Christ, I want to encourage you to turn to him this morning and to know his love for the first time in a saving way. But if you do know Christ, um, I want to invite you to respond through communion. Here in a little bit, we're going we're gonna to take um, bread and remember the forgiveness of God. And this is the time to confess where, where we have sinned. And we're going to take juice or wine and, and we're going to remember the, the beauty of the gospel in a way that not only does he forgive us, but he, he heals us completely. 
Well, that'd be good news today to know the Father's love through Christ in this love. We want to dwell on it in such a way that it, it internalizes in us and flows out of us to the way that we love others, to the way that we fight for children who are unborn, to the way that we fight for the kids who are in hard situations, to the way that we fight for the moms who are scared and alone and ashamed, to the way that we care for those from start to finish in life. It has to flow from knowing the love of God. So we want to remember that this morning. Let me pray for us. And um, look, I know there's going to be a lot of discussion to follow this, but uh, my prayer for you is that you'd allow the gospel to shape your opinion and your thoughts and your response to this tough topic. God, thank you for this morning. God, I ask that, that you bring healing where healing needs to happen, that you bring forgiveness where forgiveness needs to happen. God, I ask that you would help us to be a church that's not just sitting on the sidelines and trying to be right, but that would be a people of action. God, we know that you care for the unborn. But God, we know that you also care for all of life. So God, help us to be for humanity, for all who, who have your divine imprint, for all who bear your image. It's your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.